Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, would you please? I hope you have your copy of God's Word with you today. Bring your Bibles. We were reminded this morning as our lesson in the Sunday School Hour reminded us that our lives and our families and our upbringing of our children should be founded on the foundation of God's Word. And we come here together this morning, each Sunday we're reminded of that truth as we open God's Word. Hebrews chapter 9, I'll be there in a moment, but I hope you don't mind, I wanted to start with a song. I don't normally do this, but I thought you could play along. So I'm going to sing a line, and then you're going to sing a line, okay? There are no words on the screen, so I'm trusting you know this song. And I apologize to you who don't know this song, because there might be a few who don't know this song, but this is an old hymn, and I'm guessing that many of you know this. So I'm going to sing a line, and then I want you to sing a line, and I want you to be bold and sing it out loud, okay? Can you do that? Here we go. What can wash away my sin? I knew you knew this. Wonderful. What can make me whole again? There's another line that goes like this. Nothing can for sin atone. Not of good that I have done. Amen. Amen. Isn't that a wonderful truth? The message of that wonderful, faithful old hymn is clear, isn't it? It's clear. Just as God's Word is clear, It's only the shed blood of Jesus Christ that can wash away my sin. It's only the shed blood of Jesus Christ that can wash away your sin. Not of good was that last line I sang. Not of good that I have done. Reminding us that no amount of good works atones for your sin. Only the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Our last time here in Hebrews, we were finishing chapter 8. That was a couple of weeks ago. Chapter 8, we, we saw at the close of that chapter that in Jesus we have a better covenant, a better covenant, and a better promise, better promises and a better covenant which are kept by the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is better than all. That's what we're learning from this study in Hebrews, that Jesus is better than everything, better than everyone, better than all. And we return to Hebrews today, and as we enter chapter 9, here's what the writer wants us to observe. Let's observe this together this morning. Observe here how Jesus is a better mediator of that better covenant. We're going to see that this morning. And Lord willing, next week, as we look at this passage together these next two Sundays, 
Jesus is a better mediator of that better covenant. And we can hear it in the simple truth from that old hymn which we just sang. How is Jesus able to be the better mediator of that better better covenant? Nothing but the blood of Jesus shed for our sins. So let's observe how the writer shows us that Jesus is the better mediator. And in these first 14 verses of of Hebrews 9, as we look at them together, Hebrews 9, I hope you're there already. We're going to look at the first 14 verses. Follow along as I read. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail, cannot now speak in detail. These preparations, says verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet, is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. And verse 11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, to help us see how Jesus is the better mediator of the better covenant, the writer begins by taking us on a brief tour of the tent 
which served as the earthly Old Testament tabernacle. We see it in verses 1 through 5. And on this tour, he first says, it's like he's saying this, consider the structure and the contents. Consider the structure of the tabernacle and its contents. That's what he's doing in verses 1 through 5. Now, why consider the structure of the tabernacle? Why is the structure important? Why consider that structure? Why consider its chambers, its two chambers? Why consider the contents of those two chambers? Well, this is important because they held for the people when this was written, and even before this was written in Old Testament days, they held for the people and they hold for us theological, spiritual significance. Now, as we see in verse 5 where he says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail, the writer isn't going to go into great detail about these things. I'm going to go into more detail than he does. But I'm trying to make a point here as the writer's making a point. He says, I don't want to go into lots of detail. It's not like he can't go into detail. He says, I can't go. I cannot go into great detail here, not because he can't, but because he won't. Because the point is Jesus and how he is better than all and how he is the better mediator of the better covenant, which really is what's important here. All of these things we see in verses 1 through 5, these are all a shadow of what would come and be seen in Jesus Christ. What would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But let's note how he highlights the structure. Let's think about the structure for a moment and the contents of the tabernacle as it prepares us to see more clearly that Jesus is the better mediator of the better covenant. In verse 2, he says, a tent was prepared. Now think about where that tent was placed. Do you know where it was placed? It was placed in the very center of the encampment of the tribes of Israel as they traveled. Just think of that. Just think of the significance of where the tent was placed in the middle of the encampment of the tribes of Israel as they traveled, in the very center of their encampment. The significance of this, I think, is that God is showing them that wherever they go, there He is. Wherever they go, He is with them. He is in their midst. He is in their presence. Wherever they go, the tabernacle was a tent, of course, but it was an expensive tent made up of animal skins and all kinds of all kinds of fabric and things that, that made up this, this tent were very costly, very expensive. And, it, and this tent was a very special tent in that it symbolized the very presence of God. God would be in their midst in the wilderness as they traveled. He would be by their side. He would be in their presence. This holds spiritual significance for us when we think about this. If you realize... What God's Word teaches, you realize that God is in our presence today. Or maybe we should say, we are in God's presence. Where I am, where, where two or three are gathered together, Jesus, God's Word says, where, where two or three are gathered together, there I am. Praise God for that. As God's people come together, we have this wonderful reminder of, of where the tent was placed 
amongst the tribes of Israel as they traveled, right in the middle of their encampment. And today, even better, we have God in our midst. We have God in our midst, but even better, you know, if you're a follower of Christ, God's Word teaches you and gives you this assurance that He is in you. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And to that, I say, and we ought to say, praise God. Amen? Amen? He is in us. He is with us no matter where we go. And then of the contents, the writer says in verse 2, in the first section, that's the holy place, in the first section was the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. So there was a lampstand, which was a golden candlestick. It had branches for seven lamps. A wick and oil were placed in those branches. No candles were used. And that light would serve to remind them of the presence of God and the wisdom of God and the direction of God that He would lead them You see, the candle was needed in the tent because there were no windows in the tent. It would have been pitch black inside that tent without the lampstand. I think I just said candles contradicting myself, didn't I? They were wicks with oil in those seven branches of that lampstand. And the intricate details of that lampstand can be found in Exodus chapter 25. We're not going to go there this morning, but if you're interested, just note it. Exodus 25, verses 31 through 40, incredibly describe the intricate details of that candlestick. I said it again. That lampstand. I can't stop myself here. It's not a candlestick. It's a lampstand. The point is this. The lampstand was needed because it was dark. It was a reminder that they needed the light of God to guide them, the the truths of God to guide them. It's a reminder to us that we need the light of God in this dark world in which we live. See, the light should remind us that Jesus is the light of the world. Should remind us that believers are to be shining lights in the darkness of this world. We need the light that God sheds on our lives with His Word. And praise God we have it. We need our lives, we need to be open to it. We need to open our hearts and minds and lives to the direction and the light that God's Word shines into our lives. Praise God for that light and that reminder here from that lampstand with its seven branches. There was also a table. There was a table on which was placed the bread of presence. And there were 12 loaves, and they, they symbolized the 12 tribes of Israel. And on each Sabbath, the 12 loaves were replaced with fresh loaves, and then the old loaves were eaten, and those only by the priest, and those only in the sanctuary. And that bread was a reminder to the people that God would provide for their needs, that God had provided for their needs and would provide for their needs, would continue to provide for their needs. And when we think of the bread, I think we should rightly be reminded of the words of John chapter 6 and verse 35 where we hear Jesus say, I 
am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And then verse 3 goes on to show us the second section of the tabernacle called the most holy place. And verse 4 says, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant. That's interesting language that might, that might confuse us if, if we don't know any better. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant. It almost sounds like the golden altar of incense rested in the most holy place, that second chamber. But the golden altar did not sit in the most holy place. It was actually used in that second chamber. It was used in the most holy place of the tabernacle, but it rested in the first section called the holy place just in front of the veil that separated the two sections of the tabernacle. Of this, Warren Wearsby writes, the golden altar did not stand in the holy of holies, but its ministry pertained to the holy of holies. So that's why when we... See, verse 4 says, having the golden altar of incense, we should understand that that is referring to its use in the Holy of Holies. Wearsby goes on to say, on the annual day of atonement, the high priest used coals from this altar to burn incense before the mercy seat within the veil. But each morning and evening, a priest burned incense on this altar. David suggested that it is a picture of prayer ascending to God from Psalm 141, verse 2. And says, Wearsby, it can be a reminder that Jesus Christ intercedes for us. Think of that incense. The idea, the, the imagery is the, the prayers of God's people offered up to Him and God hearing and answering those prayers. We can see again here a theological significance to the contents of the tabernacle. Here's this incense, a symbol that God hears the prayers offered to Him. God hears the prayers of His people. Especially here, for the people of Israel, it was a reminder that God heard the prayers of the priests, that the priests offered on their behalf. But think of this. Today, because of Christ. For us, it's a reminder. That incense is a reminder that God hears and answers our prayers. We don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor to intervene for you on your behalf in prayer. Although your pastor does pray for you and should pray for you, you don't need him to do that. You can talk to the Father and God will answer your prayers. You no longer need a high priest, you have the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, through Christ we have access to God in prayer. It is only because of what Jesus has accomplished that we can pray, that we have the privilege of prayer. That's why we say, in Jesus' name, when we say, Amen. We ought to be careful about that. That that's not just a little tag, something we tag on to the end of every one of our prayers it might be helpful if we started our prayers that way. In Jesus' name I pray to remind ourselves that we have no access to God unless it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. And praise God that we do. Next we see this in verses 4 and 5, the Ark of the Covenant. It says, "...covered on all sides with gold." 
in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. There are so many different things here that we could talk about that, that hold spiritual significance, theological significance, one of them being the gold, the perfection shown here, God's perfection symbolized here with the gold. Well, let's think about the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant. It was a symbol of God's throne. Symbol of God's throne. And what does God's throne remind us of? When we think of God ruling and reigning on His throne, right? We think of His righteous reign, His sovereignty. We think of His providence over all His people. We think of His providential care for His people. His provision for His people. And inside... Inside the Ark of the Covenant were symbols of God's provision for His people. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was the golden urn, which was filled with manna. Now just consider that for a moment. Remember what the people had to do when they picked up their manna each day? They couldn't keep it. They could not keep it. On those first few days, they could not keep the manna. They had to consume it all or it would spoil. But this manna in the Ark of the Covenant, in the golden urn, miraculously being preserved as a symbol of God's provision for His people, as a symbol that God will provide faithfully, providentially, He will care for His people. By the way, do you know what the Israelites put on their manna? Miracle whip. Okay, maybe not. I thought that was what they put on it, but maybe not. Another sign of God's care. Here's the point. We don't want to miss this. I I make a joke, but the manna was a sign of God's providential care for His people. Do not forget this. Another sign of God's care and provision for His people was Aaron's staff that budded. Aaron's staff that budded. If you remember the story, this was also in the Ark of the Covenant, and it was a reminder that God provided a line of priests, a line of priests who were to serve God's people. Now, for us, that ought to be a reminder to us that God Almighty provided the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the great high priest, who served God's people by shedding His blood and serves His people now as great high priest. And then there were also in the ark the tablets of the covenant. Matthew Henry writes of the tablets, in which the moral law was written, signifying the regard God has to the preservation of His holy law and the care we all ought to have that we keep the law of God. And he goes on to remind us today, this we can only do in and through Christ by strength from Him, nor can our obedience be accepted but through Him. You see, only 
through Christ. Even our obedience is only acceptable to God through Christ. And so in the tablets we have the moral law of God as a reminder of His righteous rule. And this too is a reminder to us today that we are to live by God's standard of morality. We don't base our morality on the laws of this land. We base our morality as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ on His Word, on His holy and righteous Word. And we dare not rest our morals on the shifting morals of this culture. And then, as verse 5 says, on the top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat with a cherub of glory, it says, of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat from each end. Those cherubs were placed on each end of the mercy seat, each end of the Ark of the Covenant overlooking the mercy seat. And that was a symbol of the throne of God in the most holy place in the tabernacle. In the most holy place, there's this symbol of God's presence in His reign And these, these cherubim from each end overshadowing the mercy seat, it's, it's much like the picture we're given in Isaiah's vision of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, where we hear this. In the year of the king Uzziah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, you know what he said? We sang it. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And we could go on and on and on with the, with the spiritual examples, the spiritual lessons and truths that we see here, these theological things that are of theological significance and spiritual significance to us of the structure and the contents of the tabernacle. But the point of all this is that this was all symbolism. This was all a foreshadowing of the coming Christ. This was all symbolism. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to these people and he's writing to us because this is God's Word to us today. And he's writing saying, you need to be done with the symbolism. And you need to put your faith and trust in the reality, the Lord Jesus Christ. This was all a foreshadowing of Christ. And next week, Lord willing, we're going to see here the rituals performed by the priest. You can see them in beginning in verse 6. Homer Kent writes, The author did not wish to discuss, as we noted in verse 5, the author did not wish to discuss the individual terms in verses 1-5 through five in greater detail because he desired to emphasize Christ's superior ministry, not the types that foreshadowed Christ not the rituals that foreshadowed Christ. Yes, these were God-ordained rituals. But then God sent His Son to replace those rituals 
to permanently replace those those shadows of the reality. And the point the writer of Hebrews is making is that Jesus is the better mediator of the better covenant, and it is by the shed blood of Christ that our salvation from sins is made possible. It's not by being faithful in our church attendance. Although, if you had been in Sunday school this morning, you would have heard me say one of the ways, as I was echoing something James Merritt said in the video we watched, one of the ways to strengthen your family is to be faithful in church attendance. But you don't attend church faithfully to earn God's approval. You attend church faithfully because it's the right thing to do and you need it. And God will bless you for having been here, I can't tell you how many times I've come to church when I didn't want to. That was before I was a pastor. Now I come to church whether I want to or not. But there were times I went to church before I was a pastor when I didn't want to. And oh, what a blessing. I can't think of a time I didn't leave church and say, I'm really glad I came. I am really glad I came. But we need to remember, we can make all kinds of rules. I could tell you all kinds of things that you should be doing, and you would say, my pastor said, I have to do this. I'm not going to do that. I trust you to read God's Word. God's Word will convict your soul and, and point to things in your life that you need to change. That's why you need to be a student of the Word and read the Scriptures for yourself every day just as I do. But the rules, the regulations, anything that, that we would put into our life and say, well, I'm going to do this because God's going to approve of this if I do this, that's a shadow of the reality of what Jesus Christ accomplished for you with His shed blood. Listen as I skip ahead to verses 13 and 14. Again, listen and look. Verses 13 and 14 in chapter 9 of Hebrews. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. And those things were just temporary. They had to keep doing them again and again. If those things sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now there's an interesting statement there that you might think is contradictory. Dead works and serving God. And yet they do not contradict. And we're going to talk about that more next week, Lord willing. What we really need is a conscience that is cleansed by the living God. And we have that through Christ's shed blood. If you are a follower of Christ today, I hope you remember often, as Satan likes to remind you of things that you've done in the past, that you've confessed to God as sin, and He's forgiven, that you are forgiven. And you have no reason for guilt or shame. 
But what God calls you to is to serve Him faithfully because He is faithful, because Jesus shed His blood. And through faith in Christ, our sins are forgiven and our souls cleansed. Praise God. As the old hymn says, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus.